Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. A day after his double murder conviction, Alex Murdoch is sentenced to life in prison. And why some investors are betting big on a new class of psychedelic drugs. This is a very fragmented market, and that's what makes it very attractive to venture capital firms and biotech investors, is that you can find unicorns still. Plus, the pop star Attorney General Merrick Garland knows all too well. It's Friday, March 3rd. I'm Anne-Marie Fertoli for The Wall Street Journal. This is the PM edition of What's News, the top headlines and business stories that moved the world today. Alex Murdoch, the disbarred South Carolina lawyer who was convicted yesterday of killing his wife and son at the family's hunting estate in June of 2021, has been sentenced to two consecutive life sentences in prison. The jury deliberated for less than three hours before delivering the verdict. Circuit Court Judge Clifton Newman said the case was one of the most troubling in the state's history. Murdoch's lawyers said they planned an appeal. Amazon has paused construction on its massive second headquarters near Washington, D.C. The company had said it would spend $2.5 billion through 2030 and bring more than 25,000 jobs to the region, but is now temporarily holding off on breaking ground. Tech reporter Sebastian Herrera says it's a sign of the times. Just a few years ago, HQ2 symbolized how fast and large and powerful Amazon had grown. So to see where we are now is pretty amazing. I think it shows that Amazon is in a period of retrenchment, like many other tech companies, as the economy has soured and as growth isn't as high as it was a few years ago. Amazon says the first phase of the project, including two office towers, is nearly done, and it plans to move employees into those buildings starting in June. Original groundbreaking on HQ2 was set for the first quarter of this year. A new start date has not yet been set. We report exclusively that the rail car, federal investigators say, likely caused last month's Norfolk Southern derailment in Ohio, was handed off among four railroads before its fateful trip and was owned by a fifth company. That's according to documents and people familiar with the rail car's history and journey. Our reporter Esther Fung says those frequent handoffs could make the investigation by the National Transportation Safety Board or NTSB that much more complicated. It just shows the really complex nature of the freight railroad industry, and also more broadly, our supply chain as well. This provides a little glimpse why it takes so long to try and figure out how many parties are involved with this rail car that has the overheated wheel bearing. And the NTSB has also said that investigations can take like 18 months before they come up with a final report. They're also investigating the tanker cars that hold the hazardous materials, and what caused them to fail? Why was there a breach? Norfolk Southern has said that it and the rail industry would learn as much as they can from the accident and work with owners of rail cars on the integrity and safety of equipment. Nobel Peace Prize winner and human rights activist Alice Baliatsky was sentenced to 10 years in prison in Belarus today. A senior prosecutor told Belarusian state television that a court in Minsk found Baliatsky and three others guilty of smuggling, organizing, and financing public protests and other crimes. 
Rights activists and government opponents say the sentences were politically motivated, the latest in a campaign to silence critics of authoritarian leader Alexander Lukashenko, a close ally of Russian President Vladimir Putin. And comedian Chris Rock is finally ready to talk about the infamous slap delivered by actor Will Smith almost a year ago at the Oscars. Smith has since apologized on social media, but Rock is talking about it on his own turf, the stage. Netflix will stream the event live this weekend, a week before this year's Academy Awards. Our entertainment reporter John Jurgensen says it's also an opportunity for Chris Rock and Netflix to test pilot new technology for the company. The world has been waiting to hear from Chris Rock on this subject for almost a year. And it just so happens to coincide with this big push into live programming that Netflix is trying out right now. It's been talked about for a long time that Netflix would get into the business of live programming. They don't have sports, so they have been limited in what they can do with live programming. But Netflix sees this as their opportunity to really create a cultural moment that people feel like it might be worth tuning in for at the same time. Coming up, why some investors are seeing promise in a new class of psychedelic drugs. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. Robert Half is here to help. Our recruiting professionals utilize our proprietary AI to connect businesses with highly skilled talent. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Wall Street is betting big on a new class of psychedelic drugs that backers say could transform the way we treat mental illness. A series of startups developing these drugs has raised tens of millions of dollars from investors. While that's a pretty sizable bet on their potential, such treatments still need to be approved for use by the Food and Drug Administration. Joining me now to talk about the market potential and the regulatory process is Wall Street Journal markets reporter Matt Wirtz. Hi, Matt. Thanks so much for being here. Hello. Thanks for having me. So first, let's clarify which drugs we're talking about. I think the best way to start that conversation is to say what they're not, right? This is not LSD. It's not psilocybin, which is the active component in mushrooms. It's not peyote or mescaline. So these are not your grandpa's psychedelics or maybe your mom and dad's if you're my age. These are drugs that were developed in labs for the most part and... The reason that investors and practitioners are excited about them is that they are faster acting than your traditional psychedelic. And then the trip lasts a shorter duration. But the effects, hopefully, are the medicinal effects, so the mental health effects, are just as long-lasting as, say, psilocybin or LSD or MDMA, which clinical trials are starting to show have fantastic potential in terms of healing people with mental illness. Tell us about some of the major players in this space right now. So what I would say is that there aren't any real major players. Like that's this is a very fragmented market, and that's what makes it very attractive to venture capital firms and biotech investors is that you can find unicorns still. We are really in the nascent phases of the development of this market. And so what you have is a lot of startups right now. And I've spoken to a bunch of investors in this space. They expect there to be a ton of consolidation, right? So similar to any other technology like social media or like remember like there were all those delivery type startups that would deliver everything from 
specialty cosmetics to like pet food during COVID. There was all this buzz about delivery services, right? And then COVID receded and then a lot of those companies went out of business. So, I mean, this I think has more longevity than that space because we're in a mental health crisis in this country. So there are some companies. One of them that's better known is Compass Pathways. I think that they're a listed company. Then the companies that I looked at, you know, there's one that's a UK-listed company called Small Pharma. They're developing a treatment involving DMT for depression. There's a company called Transcend Therapeutics. They're the ones that are developing methylone for treatment of PTSD. They are interesting to me because they, they have VC chops in the sense that one of the backers is this guy... Kevin Ryan, who founded Business Insider, and then they've got a pretty young, dynamic CEO, this guy Blake Mandel, and their chief scientific advisor, this guy Ben Kelmendi, who was the first person since the 1960s, I think, to get federal funding for psychedelic research. He runs the psychedelic research unit at Yale. So they have like this kind of A-team. They've also hired a bunch of people that have experienced developing drugs and getting them through the FDA process. One of the things that's interesting about this field is that since it's so young, there's not a ton of scientists who have a lot of experience in it. So Ben, in that context, is very well experienced. He, He has years and years of running trials in this space. And he's also aware of some of the concerns that potential patients might have because he's interviewed veterans who have preconceptions about psychedelics being like mind-bending or dangerous. You know, these are concerns that most people have when they hear about LSD or shrooms. And that's one of the reasons that he was really interested in developing this drug and being a part of it is to find drugs that might be more accessible to the mainstream in this country. And to that point about people having concerns, let's be clear here that federal regulators have yet to approve these drugs for such uses, right? Correct. Yeah. So there is an expectation that MDMA will get FDA approval for certain applications within the next year. MDMA, again, is the technical, it's the acronym for ecstasy, Molly. And psilocybin, that'll be probably in the next two to three years, I think, is the expectation. But this would be approval for like a very specific application, a certain quantity with therapeutic supervision for a certain period to treat a certain diagnosis. But these drugs, while they have much less potential for misuse than others like opioids, for example, which were legal and continue to be legal in this country and continue to be abused and have caused an epidemic of their own, they can be misused, right? So there is a reason for these substances to be controlled, but I think we are moving towards them being legalized in a clinical setting. And it seems like that has huge potential because one thing we haven't talked about is the fact that clinical research is showing that these drugs have a phenomenal success rating. Let's talk about that market aspect again. You mentioned that there is the opportunity still to find unicorns here. What is making this area so attractive to investors right now? Right. So we're talking about tens of millions, if not over 100 million of potential patients, right? So it's a big market, and that's just in the United States. So right now, the stock market's not doing particularly well, particularly tech and growth stocks. And so this is an attractive 
valuation proposition for venture capital investors. It's the beginning of the market. So even if the U.S. economy broadly doesn't do particularly well over the next two to three years, as many people anticipate, this is a market that's going to grow because it's in its very early stages. And, you know, like I said, there's this potential for consolidation, right? So if you pick the winner in a market that hasn't consolidated yet, you stand to make very high multiples on your investment. So there's there's a lot of reason to be excited. And caveat, mTOR, like buyer beware, like th- this is all subject to FDA approval and the FDA approval process is really bureaucratic and can take years. And so you're taking both scientific risk, market risk, and regulatory risk. So that's an issue. Wall Street Journal markets reporter Matt Wirtz, thank you so much for joining me. You got it. And finally, Merrick Garland is a Swifty. That's right. The U.S. Attorney General likes to rock out to some of Taylor Swift's best-known tunes, maybe just like you do. Our Justice Department reporter Sadie Gurman did a thorough investigation, and she joins me now with more. So, Sadie, some people may be surprised to learn that the Attorney General is a Swifty. How did you find out about this? Yes, I think a lot of people were surprised when they heard Garland say during a regular oversight hearing that he was pretty familiar with Taylor Swift and started quoting some of her lyrics. But inside the Justice Department, this is an open secret. He has copies of almost all of her CDs that his daughters have given him inside of a curio cabinet that's right in his office. This is a place where he puts things that are most valuable to him. So it is a well-known fact that he's a Swifty, and many people on his staff are also fans of Taylor Swift. So this seems like a family affair. What did he tell you about how he became interested in Taylor Swift and why he enjoys her music? That's right. It's really a bonding moment for Mr. Garland and his daughters. Whenever a new Taylor Swift album comes out, they all get on the phone or sometimes get together and go over her playlists, choose out their favorite songs, and talk about every single album. In fact, that's how he got into Taylor Swift, was when they were growing up and he was a federal appeals court judge driving them to elementary and high school right as Taylor Swift was just becoming popular. So the girls insisted on blasting her Fearless album on his CD player in his car as he was driving them to high school, and he's been a Swifty ever since. And there have been some noticeable public moments, if people are listening carefully, where he's dropped some lyrics or song titles, as you mentioned, right? That's right. He mentioned to me a contract dispute case that he heard some years ago in which he likened the situation to Taylor Swift's infamous, famous breakup song saying, So you agree that you are never, ever, ever getting back together, like ever. And this week during a hearing, he brought up all too well. This was in the course of a conversation with Senator Amy Klobuchar about antitrust law. As Senator Klobuchar would say, uh, channeling uh, Taylor Swift, I know that all too well. So Sadie, in reporting out this story, you also looked into the musical predilections or habits of some other AGs. What else did you find? Well, for years, I had heard a story about President Trump's first attorney general, Jeff Sessions. I knew that he was a big fan of Broadway musicals, and I had heard that at at least one private meeting, he had quoted Pirates of Penzance. And so he confirmed that he is, in fact, a big fan of uh, big Broadway musicals and Julie Andrews and Sound of Music, and that this has come up throughout the course of his career. Likewise, Attorney General William Barr was known to play the bagpipes inside of DOJ. So that was some pretty epic stuff. (laughs) There we go. Some fun at the Justice Department. DOJ reporter Sadie Gerben, thank you so much. Thank you. 
And that's what's news for this week. Our hosts are me, Anne-Marie Fertoli, and Luke Vargas. The show was produced by Pierre Bienname and Kate Bullivant, with help from Anthony Bancy, Julie Chang, Daniela Cheslow, Zoe Culkin, Zoe Thomas, and J.R. Whalen. And editorial support from Alan Haberchak, Charles Hutzler, Sandra Kilhoff, Michael Cosmides, Valana Patterson, and Chris Sinsley. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us. We'll be back on Monday morning. Thanks for listening. 